there is a, a disinformation program literally for everyone, no matter who you are and what, what your interests are, uh, what your beliefs are, uh, which, which way you're focusing. There is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into the way that they want you to think. You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joe. I'm Scott. And once more, we're sitting down with Laura. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And we're dipping into the mailbag for the second week in a row. This week, we are going to be looking at the very general questions we get about, please talk about In Search of the Miraculous. Please talk about Gurdjieff. So that's what we're going to try to do today. Obviously, it is a vast subject, and we'll only be able to touch on certain aspects of it. If you have questions, please go to the Signs of the Times forum and leave them for us. And if you can be a little more specific than just, please talk about In Search of the Miraculous, that might help us a little more to focus in on some of the questions that you have. In Search of the Miraculous is the title... Well, it's the title that the English publishers gave to a book written by Peter Uspensky. The original title was Fragments of an Unknown Teaching. Fragments of an Unknown Teaching better sums up what the real content of the book is because it only kind of scratches the surface of what Gurdjieff was about, and it only scratches the surface of the teachings of esoteric Christianity, which form a part of the teachings that inspired Gurdjieff. Uspensky met Gurdjieff in Russia in, what, about 1913, 1914? The discussions in the book are Uspensky's uh, summaries of Gurdjieff's teachings during the few years that Gurdjieff was teaching in Russia. When the Russian Revolution occurred in 1917, Gurdjieff took his pupils and left and began wandering for several years and ended up living the rest of his life in France. By the time Gurdjieff got to Europe, Uspensky had broken with him. And so the teachings that you find in the book are only covering that, that few years that Uspensky was actually Gurdjieff's student. There is another book entitled Struggle of the Magicians that was written by William Patrick Patterson, which goes into some detail over the relationship between Uspensky and Gurdjieff over the years and discusses particularly how Gurdjieff was trying to work with Uspensky, who was a very intelligent man. He had done quite a bit of work on his own. He had set out on... on explorations of his own to find this knowledge that he knew existed. But he was also, he had a certain amount of pride, and his intellectual center was very, very highly developed. And Gurdjieff spent quite a bit of time trying to break through the rational side of Uspensky and trying to awaken his emotional center. 
we know in our society that it is people's intellectual centers that are trained. Uh, Moraviev talks about this quite a bit in his work, Gnosis. And so Gurdjieff was focusing on Uspensky and trying to break through the, the personality that was entirely based in Uspensky's intellectual center. And Uspensky had so much self-importance and pride that he wasn't able to, to let go. And he began to think that he understood the system better than Gurdjieff himself and misinterpreted what Gurdjieff was doing with him in a way that he thought Gurdjieff was, was trying to provoke devotion and, and ritual and some sort of a, almost a religious uh, following among his students. And he didn't see that this was just the particular way that Gurdjieff was trying to work with Uspensky to break down and, and get, his get his emotional center awakened. So this led to a break. Nonetheless, In Search of the Miraculous is a book that everyone should read because it is a very faithful account of the way Gurdjieff uh, was teaching back in, uh, in Russia prior to the revolution and the way that he did work with his students. The book is rich with, uh, with knowledge, and well, we'll only talk about some of the ideas that are in there today, and we'll try to put it in the context of the work that we are doing. Those of you who know us through Signs of the Times know that we are keeping an eye on the world day to day, trying to arrive at as objective a, a look at the world as is possible the way we put it is, how would the universe see itself? Well, that's a very good question, Henry. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is that in regards to the book itself, In Search of the Miraculous, um, it was written before Uspensky died, and he completed it and then said that it should never be published. It was his, it was his wish that it never be published. After his death, his wife, who was still very much uh, in contact with and uh, favorable towards Gurdjieff, gave the manuscript to Gurdjieff for his for his comments. After reading the entire man's manuscript, apparently his remark was that Uspensky had a very good memory, and he had no real criticisms of anything that had been written in the book. So I think that we can rely on it for a good record of what Gurdjieff conveyed to Uspensky during that period of time and uh, that it essentially did get Gurdjieff's uh, more or less tacit seal of approval as an accurate re- record of that uh, of that information as well as those times and also that we can also be thankful that Uspensky's wife decided to publish it even against Uspensky's wishes because it was way too important uh, to be suppressed. And certainly one has to wonder why Uspensky would have wished to suppress this record, uh, because there were clear differences in how Uspensky saw the teaching and how Gurdjieff, or what Gurdjieff was really after, his particular aim. And I think the most important thing for anybody who is interested in in understanding Gurdjieff, what he was about, what he was trying to do, is to try to find out, you know, what what uh, happened to him that 
gave him the ideas that he had, what was his aim, what was his objective, what were the particular circumstances and context in which he had his ideas. Because, of course, there's a lot of conjecture about you know, the particular teachings. People say that, oh, Gurdjieff got it from the Sufis, he got it from the, uh, you know, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, he got it from some secret school in, in Siberia that he, you know, borrowed from here and stole from there and uh, plagiarized this and so on. I mean, a lot of very uncomplimentary things have been said about Gurdjieff, and I don't think that it's entirely fair. Gurdjieff himself gives us an account of where, when, and how his ideas or the you know the fundament of his ideas came to him and it's in a, a a little book called life is real only then when i am and this is uh the third book in his all and everything series and i would like to just uh, read a little bit from from this book to give you an idea and i'll make some comments as i go along uh, in the foreword to the book, Life is Real, Gurdjieff uh, is quoted as having said about this particular book, quote, my last book, through which I wish to share with other creatures of our common father, similar to myself, almost all the previously unknown mysteries of the inner world of man, which I have accidentally learned. Accidentally learned. Madame de Salzman, who uh, uh, edited and published this book, tells us that Gurdjieff wrote these words on the 6th of November, 1934, and immediately started to work. For the next few months, he devoted himself entirely to working out his ideas for this book. Then suddenly, on the 2nd of April, in 1935, he completely stopped writing. Why did he leave this third series unfinished and apparently give up his intention to publish it? He let it be clearly understood on the last page of Beelzebub's Tales that the third series would be accessible only to those who would be selected as capable of understanding, quote, the genuine objective truth which he will bring to light. Before he died, Madame de Salzman tells us, Gurdjieff sent for me to tell me how he saw the state of affairs and to give me certain instructions. He said, publish as and when you are sure the time has come. Publish the first and second series. But the essential thing, the first thing, is to prepare a nucleus of people capable of responding to the demand which will arise. So long as there is no responsible nucleus of human beings, that is, the action of the ideas will not go beyond a certain threshold. That will take time, a lot of time. And then he said, to publish the third series is not necessary. It was written for another purpose. Nevertheless, if you believe you ought to do so, one day publish it. Now, what I would like you to really pay attention to is what Gurdjieff said to the caretaker of his legacy, Madame de Salzman. He said, let me repeat, the essential thing, the first thing, is to prepare a nucleus of people capable of responding to the demand which will arise. Now, I have commented on this in a, you know, elsewhere in writing that I think that when Gurdjieff said this that he was having something of a prophetic moment because, of course, with his uh, ability to observe human nature and his knowledge of history and historical cycles, it was pretty clear that, that he knew that there was going to be a need arising and he, and he did, of course, know some secrets that uh, 
the rest of us don't uh, don't really have access to. The question is, of course, how did he come by these secrets? How, what did he know? What did he really understand? Now, you notice also that she says that he wrote these words on the 6th of November, 1934. The 6th of November. It's an interesting day because, in fact, he refers to the 6th of November in the in the text of the book itself, the book uh, Life is Real Only Then When I Am. In this book, he talks about the actual event, the context in which he came to his ideas about how to do things, what to do, what was necessary, in which he basically invented his, his concept of so-called self-remembering or self-observation. And I think that there are, are an awful lot of people who, who claim to follow the Gurdji of work who haven't read this passage carefully enough and haven't really understood its import because this tells us an enormous amount of what it was that made Gurdji of the way he was, why he thought what he did, and how he came to his conclusions and basically uh, gives us a model for how we ourselves can arrive at similar states of being as Gurdjieff achieved himself. In this book, he's talking about many of his travels and and his experiences. And, of course, those of you who are familiar with the story of Gurdjieff know that he was wounded on several occasions and exposed to great danger, uh, sometimes because of foolhardiness and other times because he just happened to be traveling in parts of the world searching for answers. And those parts of the world were being subjected to you know, revolutions, to uh, tribal fighting, to uh, wars, to all kinds of uh, human folly, you know, man killing other men. And these were the kinds of conditions that Gurdjieff was experiencing when he came to the ideas that he came to. So he says in this book, and I'm going to quote, he says, After overcoming with unimaginable difficulties... Every kind of great and small obstacle, I came to the city of Yangasar in the former Chinese Turkestan, where, from old friends of mine, I supplied myself with money and found myself in that same place where I had lived several years before, while recovering my health when it had been shattered because of a stray bullet number two. This place is located on the southwestern edge of the Gobi Desert and represents, to my mind, the most fertile of all the parts of the surface of our earth. And concerning the air of this place and its salutary influence on everyone inhaling it, I will say that it is truly purgatorial. Now, I don't know if he meant purgatorial in the sense of purgatory or if he meant that it purged a person of other influences. However, this was the word he used, purgatorial. He writes further, If in reality... There exists paradise and hell, and if from them arise any kinds of radiation, then the air in the space between these two sources, that is, paradise and hell, would surely have to be similar to this. For on one side is a soil which almost literally pours from itself as from a cornucopia, all kinds of earthly flora, fauna, And right next to this fertile soil is an area of many thousands of square kilometers representing literally hell, where not only nothing crops up, but anything originating elsewhere that gets into its midst is destroyed in a very short time, leaving no trace. And he's speaking, of course, of the Gobi Desert. Namely, here on this small singular piece of the hard surface of our earth, the air of which 
That is our second food, and Gurdjieff referred to air as our as a form of food, originates and is transformed between the forces of paradise and hell. In me there had proceeded at the end of my first visit there, which he referred to just above, right at the time he was recovering from a uh, stray bullet number two. The in me had proceeded at the end of my first visit there an almost delirious condition. Just that same self-reasoning concerning which, in my consciousness, on the evening of November 6th, as I have mentioned above, there flashed an idea which appeared to me then entirely absurd. Now, what he's saying is, is that he began working on this book, Life is Real, on November 6th, more or less in a commemoration of the date of the event when he first had the idea for that what formed the foundation of his work. And I don't think, you know, many people pay an awful lot of attention to these, you know, small, curious little facts. But in any event, he's going to tell us here exactly what happened to him. On November 6th, there flashed an idea which appeared to me then entirely absurd. He says, the first time my friends brought me here in an unconscious condition, soon after I had been wounded by the second stray bullet. At the beginning, there were friends... And after the return of consciousness, and I began to improve, all of them gradually went away, and there were only two people left looking after him, a Tibetan and a very young Kara Kyrgyz. So he was living there, far from people of all sorts, attended by two sympathetic people who treated me almost maternally, and all the time nourished by that above-mentioned cleansing air. I, within six weeks, recovered so that I already wished and was able at any moment to leave this place. Everything was gathered, so they were packed up and they were awaiting the arrival of the, the, the camels, the, the little caravan that was going to take him away from this place. And he continues, I was by that time, though not yet entirely, as it sa- is said, strong on my feet, I was already feeling quite well. It was night. The full moon was out. Thinking long paths of current associations, unnoticeably my thoughts passed again to the question which by this time had become finally transformed into the idée fixe of my inner world. Continuing to think about this under the influence from one side of a distant hollow din formed from the sounds of millions of lives of all possible outer forms, and on the other side of an awesome silence. In me gradually arose, in relation to myself, a critical faculty of unprecedented strength. At the beginning, there were recollected in me all of my blunders in my former searches. While from one side I constated my blunders, and in general the imperfections of the methods previously applied by me from the other side, it became clear how I ought to have acted in this or that instance. I remember very well how my strength waned from these tense thoughts, and during this, some part of me, time and again, ordered me to get up quickly, rouse myself in order to stop such thoughts. But this I could not do, so strongly had I been involved in these same thoughts. Now, let's stop right here and consider what Gurdjieff is describing here. He is describing his first real conscious experience or awareness of the fact that he was actually self-remembering himself, that he was doing the very thing upon which he based his entire work for the rest of his life. Let me read it one more time, what what he was doing, what he was thinking. While from one side I constated my blunders, 
and in general the imperfections of the methods previously applied by me. From the other side, it became clear how I ought to have acted in this or that instance. This is the beginning of the process of self-remembering, to take an inventory of your life, to really look at it in a cold, clear, clean way, to see how each action you have taken led to another action or to a reaction from another individual or from life itself, and to examine it in its full context with full knowledge and to understand you know, what you ought to have done that would have made things different. Because in many cases, I am sure that everyone knows that in any given instance when they say or do something and, and something painful or unpleasant occurs, after the fact, they realize what they should have done. There's an old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. What Gurdjieff is here talking about is applying this twenty twenty hindsight. I mean, an actual application of twenty twenty hindsight. But let's go on and see what else he did with this. He says, I don't know with what this would have ended if at the moment when instinctively I began to feel that I must lose consciousness, the three camels near me had not sat down. At this, I came to myself and got up. By this time, day was already dawning. Awake also were my young companions, who were busying themselves with the usual preparations for morning life in the desert. After talking with the old man, we decided to take advantage of the moonlight and set out on the evening. Moreover, the camels could rest well during the day. But instead of lying down to sleep, I took with me a rifle and a traveling pail made of canvas, and I went to a nearby spring of very cold water on the very edge of the desert. Undressing, I began very slowly to pour this cold water over me. After this, though I felt quite well mentally, physically I became so weak that after dressing I was compelled to lie down there near the spring. I'll pay close attention here. And then, being so weak physically and very well refreshed mentally, there proceeded in me that same self-reasoning, the essence of which became impressed in my consciousness forever, and concerning which, on that evening of November 6, flashed the mentioned idea. Due to its remoteness, I do not remember the exact words of that first self-reasoning, so discordant with my usual general state. But having preserved in myself the, so to say, taste of it, I can recollect it exactly, though in different words. It consisted of the following. Now here you're going to be hearing what Gurdjieff is recounting as what was going through his mind during this moment of intense mental clarity, this transformative moment. This is This is the... This is the thing that made Gurdjieff who he was and what he was and drove him to do what he did. So this is something that is extremely important. Pay close attention. He was thinking, Judging by my fitness during the last few days, it seems I again have come to life and willy-nilly will have to drag on and drudge as before. My God, is it possible that I will have to experience again all that I have lived through during the periods of my fully collected active state for the last half year before this last misfortune of mine? In short, he is wondering, do I have to just continue on the way I have been going? I mean, is this is this all there is to life? Is that, I mean, just this pain and suffering and misery, this striving and struggling and seeking and and being afflicted by the f- arrows and of misfortune and 
and so forth. So this is what he's thinking. And I'm sure that most people have thought this at one time or another. Not only to experience feelings alternating almost regularly between remorse for the inner and outer manifestations of my ordinary waking state and loneliness, disappointment, satiation, and the rest, but primarily to be everywhere haunted by the fear of inner emptiness. What also have I not done? What resources have I not exhausted in my determination to reach a state where the functioning of my psyche and my usual waking state would flow in accordance with the previous instructions of my active consciousness? But all in vain. In my past life, being forever merciless to my natural weaknesses, and almost all the time jealously keeping watch over myself, I could attain almost anything within the limits of man's possibilities, and in some fields attained even to such a degree of power as not one man, perhaps, not even in any past epoch, has ever attained. For instance, the develop of the power of my thoughts had been brought to such a level that by only a few hours of self-preparation I could, from a distance of tens of miles, kill a yak. Or in 24 hours I could accumulate life forces of such compactness that I could in five minutes put to sleep an elephant. At the same time, in spite of all my desires and endeavors, I could not succeed in remembering myself in the process of my general common life with others so as to be able to manifest myself, not according to my nature, but according to the previous instructions of my collected consciousness. Now that is such an important point because right there you've got the whole split that we see in so many teachings, these people focusing on phenomena. You've got Gurdjieff who says he had these tremendous powers that he had developed which could be similar to the kinds of things that that you hear gurus and, and teachers claiming that they can develop in their students. And in spite of all of this, he saw that in a sense he was completely empty and he had achieved nothing at all. As he says, I could not attain the state of remembering myself and that is remembering these profound ideas that had passed through his mind about, you know, being able to, you know, the hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, knowing what you were doing as opposed to what you should and ought to do. He's saying that he was not even able to remember what he ought to do in any mm-hmm. given situation because he was behaving more or less automatically. All the things he had mm-hmm. done, had done automatically, as opposed to this clarity of vision where he saw what he ought to have done and vowed to himself that from now on he would do what he ought to do instead of being ruled by this automatic behavior. And here he's saying, I am able to kill a yak with the power of my mind or put to sleep an elephant, and I cannot even remember to do myself what I ought to do based on that deep level of conscious awareness that I know I can achieve, but which goes away from me, which leaves me, which leaves me at the mercy of my mechanical behavior. Yeah, it's, it's from, and it's from that that brings um, his uh, Gurdjieff's concept of uh, of doing, uh, the capital D of being able to do, and where he repeatedly says that you know ordinary man cannot do anything, and in doing, I mean obviously doing does not uh, refer to um, the, the normal uh, activities of, of of the ordinary life of of the average person, and does not refer to being able to kill a yak from 
from so many miles and not being able to uh, put an elephant to sleep. That is not what uh, Gurdjieff defined as doing. So He described doing as being able to do what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. But that's still a little bit ambiguous. Yes, it's still a little bit ambiguous. But in any event, he says, I could not attain the state of remembering myself even sufficiently to hinder the associations flowing in me automatically from certain undesirable hereditary factors of my nature. As soon as the accumulation of energy which enabled me to be in an active state was exhausted, at once associations of both thoughts and feelings began to flow in the direction of objects diametrically opposed to the ideals, the ideals of my consciousness. When I found myself in a state of complete dissatisfaction with food and sex, the leading factor of these associations of mine appeared to be primarily vindictiveness. And in a state of full satisfaction, they proceeded on a theme of the forthcoming pleasure of a meal and sex, or of the gratification of self-love, vanity, pride, jealousy, and other passions. I thought deeply myself and tried to find out from others about the reasons for such a terrible situation within my inner world, but could not clarify anything at all. From one side, it is clear that it is necessary to remember myself during the process of ordinary life also. In other words, to have this deep and intense state of awareness of being able to see, you know, that that part of you that would go along and do things this way, and then that other part of you that would be able to observe and say, no, that's not what you ought to do. This is what you ought to do. That hindsight part of yourself, to bring it into actuality on a continual basis. This is what he's talking about. From one side, it is clear that it is necessary to remember myself during the process of ordinary life, and from the other side, that there is a necessity for the presence of attentiveness, which is able to merge in case of contact with others. So he's talking about having this, this intense state of self-awareness of the, of the hindsight 2020 view of the self, as well as still being able to be attentive to the world, itself to the environment and to other be- people within it to have you know a highly manifested state of being this is what he's talking about though in my past life i had tried everything even had worn reminding factors of all kinds on my person nothing helped perhaps these did help a little while i carried them on me but if so it was only at the beginning as soon as i stopped carrying them or got used to them in a moment it was as before there is no way out whatsoever However, there is, there is one exit only, to have outside myself a never-sleeping regulating factor, namely a factor which will remind me always in my every common state to remember myself. But what is this? Can it really be so? A new thought. Why, hitherto, could there not have come to my head such a simple thought? Did I have to suffer and despair so much in order only now to think of such a possibility? Why could I not in this instance also look to a universal analogy? And here is our universal analogy. There is God. Only he is everywhere. And with him everything is connected. I am a man. And as such, I am, in contrast to all other outer forms of animal life, created by him in his image. 
For he is God, and therefore I also have within myself all the possibilities and impossibilities that he has. The difference between God and myself must lie only in scale. For he is God of all the presences in the universe. It follows then that I also have to be God of some kind of presence at my own scale. I am God also, although only of my inner world. He is God and I am God. For all and in everything we have the same possibilities and impossibilities. Whatever is possible or impossible in the sphere of his great world should be possible or impossible in the sphere of the small world of an individual man. This is as clear as that after the night must inevitably come the day. But how could I have failed to notice such a startling analogy? I had thought so much about world creation, world maintenance, and in general about God and his deeds, and had discoursed with many others about all these matters, but never once had there come to me this simple thought, and yet it could not be otherwise. Everything, without exception, all sound logic as well as all historical data, reveal and affirm that God represents goodness. He is all-loving, all-forgiving. He is the just pacifier of all that exists. At the same time, why should he, being as he is, send away from himself one of his nearest by him animated, beloved sons, only for the way of pride proper to any young and still completely formed individual, and bestow upon him a force equal but opposite to his own, I refer here to the devil. This idea illuminated the condition of my inner world like the sun, and rendered it obvious that in the great world, for the possibility of harmonious construction, there was inevitably required some kind of continuous perpetuation of this reminding factor. For this reason, our Maker himself, in the name of all that he had created, was compelled to place one of his beloved sons in such an, in the objective sense, invidious situation. Therefore, I also have now for my small inner world to create out of myself from some factor beloved by me and alike unending source there arises now a question what is there contained in my general presence which if I should remove it from myself would always in my various general states be reminding me of itself thinking and thinking, I came to the conclusion that if I should intentionally stop utilizing the exceptional powers in my possession, which had been developed by me consciously in my common life with people, then there must be forced out of me such a reminding source, namely the power based upon strength in the field, as it would be called by others, the power of telepathy and hypnotism. Thanks mainly to this, my inherency, developed in me by myself, I, in the process of general life, especially for the last two years, had been spoiled and depraved to the core, so that most likely this would remain for all my life. And so, if consciously I would deprive myself of this grace of my inherency, then undoubtedly, always and in everything, its absence would be felt. So, Gurdjieff is proposing to himself that he make a vow that he should do a certain thing, 
and that he should stick to this vow to deprive himself of something that he refers to as his power of telepathy and hypnotism, which he had used for survival to get things he needed, wanted, sex, you know, money, uh, uh, resources, etc. Now, the equivalent of this in the ordinary human state is to vow to deprive ourselves of our games, of our manipulations, of our self-deceptions, our lies to ourselves, our lies to other people, and to continuously thereby remind ourselves of who and what we are, essentially and in our core. The trouble that we have with that is that Gurdjieff appears to have been conscious of his uh, the powers that he's speaking of. He was conscious of the way that he used those powers to get what he needed. And when we look at ourselves, we are in most cases, completely unconscious of the games that we play, of the programs that we're running, of the manipulations that we're doing. So you have to come to the first step where you say, what are they? And you have to learn to identify them. But that's part of the uh, what Gurdjieff talked about in, um, in terms of self-remembering and uh, going, looking back at his, at, at your, uh, you know, situations in the past where you've mm-hmm. done certain things and uh, and assigning to to that situation the, the objective reality you know because people will look back at certain events in their life and and will generally try to to find a way um, to excuse themselves of any wrongdoing of any manipulation mm-hmm. and project the, the blame or or just muddy the waters in some way to excuse themselves and it's this kind of harsh um, critical look at ourselves that 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 is first required uh, as Henry's stating. And we use those things to get what we want, get what we need. And here is where he actually addresses that. He says, I take an oath to remember never to make use of this inherency of mine, these powers, and thereby to deprive myself from satisfying most of my vices in the process of living together with others. This beloved inherency will always be a reminder for me. Never so long as I live shall I forget what state of mind resulted then, when, on the last day of my presence in that place, there happened the above-given self-reasoning, which terminated in the conclusions which I have given above. As soon as I realized the sense of this idea, I was as if reincarnated. I got up and began to run around the spring without knowing what I was doing, like a young calf. It all ended thus that I decided to take an oath before my own essence in a state of mind known to me never again to make use of this property of mine. I must also mention that when I took the oath not to apply in life this inherency, I made a reservation that my oath should not concern the application of it for scientific purposes. For instance, I was very much interested then, and even now my interest has not entirely vanished. And listen carefully to this in increasing the visibility of distant cosmic centers many thousand times through the use of a medium and in the cure of cancer by the power of suggestion. Now, Gurdjieff has said right here that seeing through the use of a medium was one of his main interests. And one wonders why the use of a medium, the use of seeing via a medium, 
the use of his powers for this purpose has been so completely ignored by those so-called followers of Gurdjieff. Well, the way he describes it certainly reminds me of another experiment that somebody has been conducting over the last well, 14 or 12 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plus, I mean, there isn't much reference to that, uh, as you say, by followers of Gurdjieff, and there isn't much, uh, I mean, I don't think he explains anywhere exactly the nature of of, of his, of his, of his ideas. Of, of, well, of his mediumistic uh, yeah. You know, uh, channeling, if you want to call it that, but but maybe that word channeling is the problem. And and around the time, uh, the beginning of the of the twentieth century, with the whole spiritism and spiritualism and the table tipping and the the mediumistic uh, kind of sessions that were going on. I mean, a lot of that has been uh, has come in to, at the time was was uh, come in for a lot of disrepute and and criticism, and it became something of a farce with 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 staged. Uh, kind of um, you know uh, sessions of this nature, so it may, it may be understandable that he didn't want to exactly kind of uh, highlight or, or to involve himself in, in that milieu because of the there's that, nature of it. There's that aspect of it, and there's also the aspect that people use it as a crutch. People use it as something out there is going to save me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, because he, so he says uh, what he's talking about here is the power of telepathy and hypnotism. And I made a reservation that he could apply this, that is, the power of telepathy and hypnotism, scientifically in increasing the visibility of distant cosmic centers many thousand times through the use of a medium. And then he finally concludes this discussion of what was the foundation of his ideas and his work by saying, Toward the end of this second sojourn in my being, the basic aim of almost all my life split into two definite aspects. And this time also, thanks to my unhindered free mentation, that is, mentation which proceeded without the effects of the automatic influences of other people. The trouble is that until this time, the aim of my inner world had been concentrated on only my one unconquerable desire, which was to investigate from all sides and to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man. Until this time in my life, every activity into which I had rushed Every failure or success had been connected with this soul, the singular aim of my inner world. Even my propensity during this period for traveling and trying to place myself wherever in the process of the mutual existence of people, there proceeded sharp energetic events, such as civil war, revolutions, etc., had sprung from this, my sole aim, which was to investigate from all sides and to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man. I had collected material for clearing up the problems of my principal aim in a more concentrated form and therefore more productively. So he, he is telling us here that he did collect a great deal of information from many sources. Secondly, as a result of the memory in my automatic mentation, of the sight of all sorts of terrors flowing from the violent events which I had witnessed, and finally from accumulated impressions arising from conversations with various revolutionaries in the previous several years 
first in Italy, then in Switzerland, and more recently in Transcaucasia, there had crystallized in me little by little, besides the previous unique aim, another also unconquerable aim. Now, I want to stop and just comment on the fact that he is mentioning here another thing, you know, another uh, another insight on what he was going through when he was thinking of all of these things that he was, had done in the past and what he ought to have done or, you know, so forth. You know, that when he was in this process of so-called self-remembering what he was thinking about, he says, the result of the memory in my automatic mentation of the sight of all sorts of terrors flowing from the violent events which I had witnessed and from accumulated impressions arising from conversations with various revolutionaries in the previous several years. Now, horrors and conversations with revolutionaries are what crystallized in him this new second aim that was in addition to his previous aim, which was to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man. So what was this new aim? This other newly arisen aim of my inner world can be summed up in this, that I must discover at all costs some manner or means for destroying in people the predilection for suggestibility which causes them to fall easily under the influence of mass hypnosis. And then we think again of the fact that he applied his abilities to increasing the visibility of distant cosmic centers many thousands of times through the use of the medium. And then the thing with which we began this little examination of what was going on with Gurdjieff, that he said... Note carefully the dying words of Gurdjieff. The essential thing, the first thing, is to prepare a nucleus of people capable of responding to the demand which will arise. And one suspects that Gurdjieff saw a great, great deal that perhaps no one was ever privy to. And if there was someone who was privy to it, they certainly have not revealed it because these clues indicate to us that there was much more to what Gurdjieff was doing than is generally propagated by those people claiming to be followers of the so-called fourth way. And we can end this discussion here for the moment. We'll pick up in the next podcast. If you'd like to discuss any of the ideas that we have raised, you can come to the Signs of the Times forum. There is a link off of the Signs of the Times page at www.signs-of-the-times.org So thank you and we'll see you next time.